today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Oh, it's next to that other verse that people think is in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the book of First Hezekiah. The problem is there's no such thing as the book of First Hezekiah. It's not in the Bible. This notion of God helps those who help themselves, it's the opposite that's true. God helps those who can't help themselves. One of the most important things we need to come to terms with is our utter helplessness. Today, Pastor J.D. wants you to know that that's why Jesus came. You can't save yourself. You can't make a better version of yourself. Self-help programs are useless. Only Jesus can give you a new heart and save you. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Isaiah chapter 1 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. If a daughter or a son in any way did this, it would have been again unthinkable and it would have to be judged. Now stay with me on this because this is going to be germane to our understanding of this book and certainly this chapter, because it's chapters like this, it's books like this, particularly in the Old Testament, that give God bad press, if I can say it like that. It's books like this, it's chapters like this, that cause people to say, you know, the God of the Old Testament was a a wrathful God. Well, God is just, but God is loving too. Here's the thing. If God was not just, He would not be loving. And if God were not loving, He would not be just. Let me explain. Let's say that we go into court, and the perpetrator of the crime, horrific crime, unspeakable crime, against a little child, let's say. Let's just bring it up a notch. It rises to that level. I mean, it is an unspeakable, evil crime that's been committed. And you go into the courtroom, and the judge is a loving judge. He says, you know what? We're good. Passes an easy sentence, time served, slap on the hand, slap on the wrist, as they say. That's unjust. Oh, but... He's loving. No, he's not. Because what about the victims? That's not loving towards the victims. See, God, I want to say it like this, and for lack of a better way of saying it, it's not that God has a problem, because God doesn't have problems, obviously, but He has a dilemma of sorts. And that dilemma is, how does He remain just and loving at the same time? This is how. Grace, salvation, redemption. Because see, He can still be just. He becomes a man with us, God with us, fully God, fully man, dies for us because of His love for us. There's the love, and pays the price, satisfying justice. And there's the justice. Do you see the beautiful marriage between love and justice. He's a just God, but He's a loving God, and He can't be one 
without the other. If he's not just, he's neither loving, nor is he not loving if he's unjust. He's a just judge. His judgments are righteous and just. He is a just, loving God and loving judge. Verse 4, you need to have that in your hip pocket, so to speak, because it's going to get a little bit gnarly here, as we're about to see. Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. We're going to see that reference throughout this book, the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. I don't know if you notice this or not, but just in one verse, there are seven serious charges in this indictment, and that's by design, because the number seven is the number of completion. What God is saying in charging them with these indictments, seven and all, is that their wickedness was complete wickedness. Complete and utter and total wickedness. Verse five, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and, this is, could have gone without hearing this, especially after dinner, and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. You know what God's saying here in this indictment against Judah? He's saying no amount of discipline seems to have any effect. I have disciplined you from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot, and yet you keep on sinning against me. You know, I think we would do well when we read passages like this to allow the Holy Spirit unfettered access to that deep recess in our hearts, that place in our hearts that is obstinate, stubborn, rebellious, unteachable. It's like God saying, I've tried everything to discipline you, but there's nothing that works. You are not able to be disciplined. I've tried everything to correct you, but you're not correctable. I've done everything and stopped at nothing to teach you, and you're unteachable. Nothing seems to work. No amount of discipline. Keep in mind, and this is important, discipline, this is one of those words that conjures up all sorts of negative connotations. Discipline, ooh. It actually comes from the root word disciple, to train, to discipline, 
to instruct, direct. That's what he's saying. I, I want to direct you, correct you, protect you from unnecessary suffering of the consequences of your sin and rebellion. I'm trying to discipline you, disciple you, train you, lead you, guide you, and you won't be led. You won't be corrected. I've tried everything. What an indictment. It gets worse. (laughs) Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So, verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in the vineyard, vulnerable, insecure, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The common denominator in all of those comparisons is vulnerability and insecurity. Verse 9, unless, I like this word, (laughs) the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. We're going to hear about Sodom and Gomorrah referenced again here shortly. You know what's happening here? This is, again, one of those paradoxical marriages between mercy and judgment. It's the mercy of God, unless God in His mercy, the Lord of hosts, would have just been merciful to us and left us but a small remnant, we would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know how it ended up for Sodom and Gomorrah? Completely destroyed. But God, in His mercy, in His love, in His compassion, He saved for Himself a small remnant. And unless the Lord would have done that, it would have been a completely devastating. And again, this is a demonstration, as only God can, of both mercy on one side, yet judgment on the other. This blend, it's a paradox, between justice and love. He's a just God, but He's a loving God, and He's a merciful God. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come, verse 12, to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? To trample my courts? 
Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. (laughs) Translated, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. I cannot endure it anymore. Stop bringing me your sacrifices. What a chilling and scathing indictment against the futility of their worship. It's meaningless. It's inconsequential. It means nothing to me. In fact, if anything, I become incensed with your incense and burnt offerings, as it were. It's an abomination to me. That's pretty strong, you know. I hate it. That's what he's saying. It's abominable, unacceptable. It's repulsive to me, and I can't take it anymore. Stop. Stop doing it. Stop worshiping me outwardly. I see the heart. Your heart's not in it. It's going to get even a little bit more graphic here in a moment, as if it couldn't. (laughs) Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, verse 17. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Wow. Oh. Well, you know what it sounds like to me is that They had innocent blood on their hands, the very hands that they would raise and worship to the Lord. And the Lord's like, I'm not even going to look. Oh, and those, those prayers, I don't even hear them. Why? Because you've got blood on your hands. Stop. Stop it. This is a quintessential textbook case of hypocrisy. One thing on the outward, the opposite on the inward. They had blood on their hands, the blood of the innocent on their hands. And notice the reference here to the widow and the fatherless. James says that pure, undefiled religion, better understood in our day as pure, undefiled, unadulterated worship. You want to worship God? You want to please God? Take care of the widow and the fatherless. That's pure, undefiled worship and religion. God takes seriously the widow the fatherless. You know that, when I was a young believer, I just thought of this, it's, um, it's kind of interesting, but you know when people would say, well, God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? 
You know, when I was a, a young believer, actually, I'll never forget this conversation. It was like it was just yesterday. And I was talking to my cousin, and he quoted that. And I'm just like, like a new believer. I mean, I'm talking babe in Christ, infant. I'm like weeks old. I'm a spiritual infant. And I was still in the process of reading through the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation for the first time. The year was 1986, by the way. Don't do the math. I was five years old in 1986. I was a new believer. And I hadn't got through the whole Bible yet. And he said, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And I'm like, oh, wow, because it sounds like it was in the Bible. And it turns out it's not in the Bible. Oh, it's next to that other verse that people think is in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the book of First Hezekiah. The problem is there's no such thing as the book of First Hezekiah. It's not in the Bible. This notion of God helps those who help themselves, it's the opposite that's true. God helps those who can help themselves. He's the God of the helpless and the hopeless throughout Scripture. In fact, I think First Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, another good king, by the way. Messed up, but still a good king, one of the nine. There comes this army, great horde. I mean, it's, it's game over, they know it. I mean, here they are, this, this small army of Israelites, and this great horde is coming against them. And Jehoshaphat is like, we're going to pray, we're going to fast, all of the Israelites, their families, their children with them. I love that detail, by the way. Sometimes our children need to be involved in the worship of the Lord. They need to see us as their parents modeling worship of the Lord, and prayer, and worship, and fasting, and seeking the Lord. They need to see that model. So all of the families gathered together, and Jehoshaphat cries out to God, And he says this, he says, God, we are helpless. There's no hope against this great horde. We don't know what we're going to do, but our eyes are on you. The heavenly hush. Shh, quiet. Did you just hear what Jehoshaphat prayed? He said he's helpless. He says, they don't know what to do. He said, their eyes are on me. Go! And then he says to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, (laughs) you're not going to have to fight this battle. Battle belongs to the Lord. That is not to say that all battles don't have to be fought. There are battles that have to be fought, but not this one. I'll take care of this one for you. Did you say you were helpless? Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do. Okay, I got this then. He said, I just want you to stand and watch me now. And he delivers this great horde into the hands of the Israelites, miraculously even effortlessly, all because Jehoshaphat said, we're helpless. We don't know what to do. 
our eyes are on you. I say that to share this. I'm learning this in my own walk with the Lord. I think the Lord waits for us to come to that place where we throw up our hands and we say, Lord, (laughs) this is funny. (laughs) The odds? Yeah. This, we're toast with a capital T and a capital toast too. I mean, unless you intervene, there's no way. And I think it's, as we say, music to God's ears. Ah, that's what I needed to hear. Now, watch me. Because see, now only I will get the glory for it. Even if you wanted to try, I mean, it would be, it would just be a joke. Oh, I think about Gideon and his army, 300 men against the army of the Midianites. One detail in the narrative says that there were too many to be numbered. Another part suggests that just in the close proximity of the army of the Israelites, there was about 135,000. You know how it went down, right? So Gideon starts off with 32,000 men, and then God says, you, you got too many men? To which Gideon's like, I, I, no, they have too many men. We, they, they have, we only have, he says, no, you got too many men. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I would have loved to have been a fly on the camel there to see the expression on Gideon's face when God says, I want you to go to these 32,000 men and say, if any of you are afraid, you can go home. If I'm getting it, here's how I'm doing it. If any of you are afraid, you can go home. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> you don't want them to go home because you know they're afraid and you know a lot of them are going to go home. Uh, sure enough, 22,000 left. And then Gideon's like, what's up with this? And then, now he's got 10,000 men. And then God says, Gideon, you still have too many men. Really? Yes, really. So I want you to take them down to the springs. Those of you that have been to Israel with us have been to these springs. It's a, an amazing sight. And he says, I want you to separate the 10,000 men that remain, and I want you to put the ones over here that just stick their face in the water and just, you know, drink it because they're thirsty, they're all really thirsty, and then I want you to put them over here, and then I want you to put the ones that cup the water and bring it to their mouth, and I want you to put them over here. Now you got to wonder what's going through Gideon's mind. How many men are going to stick their face in the water? 9,700. Picture the scene, and if you're there, you see it's a vast area. I could picture 9,700 guys there's enough land mass there. They're all over there, and I'm looking, and I'm just watching Gideon. There's 300 men over there that cup the water. Now, you probably heard that taught like this. Well, these were the top guns, man. The Green Berets keeping their eyes on the battlefield, and you know, whereas the other ones that stuck their face in the water. I mean, you know, they're not battle worthy. They're not keeping their eye on the battlefield. I don't believe that because it doesn't fit. Remember now when God calls Gideon, you know where he's at? He's in the wine press threshing grain. You know why? Because he's afraid of the Midianites, because they would steal the grain from the Israelites. 
So he's hiding out in total fear. And then God comes to him, almighty warrior. Here's Gideon. Where? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Me? Yeah, you. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. We hope you continue to be encouraged as you learn some good things from the book of Isaiah. Did you realize that there are 39 chapters in Isaiah that address judgment and 27 chapters that point to God's salvation? How fascinating that this book relates to 39 books of the Old Testament, much about judgment of sin, and 27 books of the New Testament, pointing to Jesus as God's salvation for the world. Isaiah is yet another example of how God interweaves the old with the new, and how prophecies from old point to fulfillment of that later. Are you seeing the connections that God has written into these pages of Isaiah? If you're wanting to hear this message again or more like it, you can find them at calvarychapelkaneohe.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the church this ministry is supported by, Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. If you're not already plugged into a local church, we invite you to be part of our church family. If you're in or near the Kaneohe area, we'd love for you to come visit us on Sundays and Thursdays for a time of worship, fellowship, and in-depth Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can find service times and directions on our website. Again, that's calvarychapelkaneohe.com. We're so glad you tuned in today to learn from the book of Isaiah. We look forward to the next edition with Pastor J.D. and the things that God has put on his heart to share from this prophetic book. Thanks again for listening today to In Spirit and Truth. Holy.